0: On this day, in terms of liturgical readings, there are three, and I'm just giving you a little glimpse of what some people are going to be hearing. A reading from Romans chapter 3. And this is a little paraphrase. Since by faith we know that the justice of God is inclusive, And means the justice of equality. How can anyone be excluded from a community of Christ? Is God the God of Christians only? And not of all God lovers and seekers? Now when Paul was writing these words. He was writing to a very primitive Christian community. That had come together in Rome. That he had not even met but he was hearing things about them because these early Christian communities came out of a Jewish tradition. There were some people still hanging on to the Jewish religious system and they considered some of the Gentiles, the Greeks who were coming in, who didn't have that as part of their history as second-class citizens. And so one of the big... Items that needs to be flagged about the Reformation is something that some of my mentors have called the Reformation hermeneutical trick. And if the word hermeneutical uh, is not one that's part of your day-to-day vocabulary, it means a process of how we interpret things. Have you run across the name John Dominic Cross on anywhere? John Dominic Crossan is one of the group of people called the Jesus Scholars. And uh, Crossan himself uh, has been one of the foremost scholars in getting at the historical Jesus. And in one of his books by the title The Birth of Christianity, he says, if we look at Jesus... Through the eyes of Paul. And when he says that, he's talking about this distortion of Paul that happened in the Reformation. That if we look at Jesus through that context, we will misunderstand Jesus. And that has certainly been a problem. But he said, if we look at Paul through the eyes of Jesus and his experience... We'll have a new and different understanding of Paul, and uh, I brought along one of the books that really deals with this, and uh, it's a book by Crossan and Marcus Borg, in which they get at the distortions throughout the centuries since the Reformation and even before that, the distortions of what Jesus is all about and gets us back not only to the truth about Jesus, but a different understanding of Paul. So one of the most important books that has come along, and uh, I encourage you to look for it somewhere. A second reading is from Paul writing to the Galatians. By the way, as I back up just to those Roman things, the real issue, even though the language gets used there about justification, the real issue in Rome was not how do you get right with God, that kind of justification. The real issue was a equality of justice in the Christian community that everyone's going to have equal standing. And so, when some of these people are hanging on to their Jewish traditions and insisting that you can't be a real Christian unless you go through that process of accepting all the Jewish tradition. So, uh, that's a different spin on Romans. Then Galatians. This is one of the places that uh, there was a lot of controversy. Uh, Paul had a lot of difficulty with people there. And the same problem existed. And again, with a paraphrase that takes what Paul was writing to the Galatians into some context of today. In Christ, there is neither black nor white, rich nor poor, Male nor female, straight nor gay, for all are one in liberation community. And then finally, one of the Gospels that is certainly often misunderstood and has taken us down a wrong path over the years because of some of the translations. This is the Gospel of John. And In the Gospel of John, there are a lot of references to the Jews, especially in relation to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so throughout history, there was this notion among Christian communities, and it certainly reached a high pitch in Germany, that the Jews were the Christ killers. At one time, Luther, was trying to reach out to the Jewish community because he wanted to convert them to Christianity. But when his attempts at reaching out for that were rejected, he took a different tack completely. And that's when he began to develop this thing of the Jews as Christ killers, a sentiment that continued on into the 20th century and contributed to all those awful moments under Hitler's Nazi regime. So, if we get back to the real significance of the Gospel of John, John was dealing with some Jewish nationalists who wanted to restore Jerusalem to its moment of glory under David these were the religious nationalists the primitive Zionists whose wishes to restore Jerusalem haven't really come true until now in the 20th and 21st century with the state of Israel and that's one that invites another conversation at some time because The nation of Israel today reflects that Jewish nationalism, Jewish sovereignty that Jesus was challenging and inviting people to become one and not just to subscribe to a certain notion of God and certainly not to do it around religious nationalism. And so he was saying to some of his followers, if you make my word your home, you will indeed be my disciples. The truth, and the truth will make you free. In my word. And again, there's this trick that has been played to take these words of Jesus and say that he's talking about the Bible. This is absolutely absurd. He's talking about his own teachings and that if you really make your own, if you live in my words about mercy and justice and compassion, you'll be truly liberated. And uh, that's where I want to depart for a little bit and get into talking to him about the hammer. Uh, you know, some of the myth about Luther is that he was out there uh, in the Wittenberg courtyard and goes over to this Wittenberg University church and hammered these 95 theses on the door. It's possible that that happened, but uh, uh, it's not likely, and yeah, that's a good story. So uh, one of the things John Dominic Crossan talks about is we have to make a distinction, a distinction between history memorialized and memory historicized. And so sometimes it's just like in family reunions, you know, people start sharing memories. after 25 years, the stories grow and grow. And finally, you know, 50 years later, they're still telling these family stories and it doesn't resemble anything like it did when they first been told. So this myth of Luther's hammer is uh, symbolic because uh, he was posting his protest against what he called the unfortunate sale of indulgences. Now, I'm learning that we got someone here who was raised in the Catholic tradition. Are there others who were raised in the Catholic tradition? I don't think that in the 20th or 21st century, anyone in the Catholic Church has ever been talking about indulgences. Am I right? But at that time, the notion that when people were going to confession, then the priest would hear their confession and uh, forgive them, but along with forgiving them, proscribe some penance. Some act of penance that they ought to do. And I'll never forget the story someone told about this guy who came confessing to the priest and said, I've been stealing lumber. And I'm starting to feel, you know, my conscience is really bothering me. So, well, how serious is this? He says, hey, How much have you been stealing? He said, thousand dollars. Oh no, more than that. been going on for a long time. He's into thousands and thousands of dollars. And the priest says, well uh, this really sounds serious. We need to work out some real Catholic penance. You think you can make a novena? Now for Catholics they would know that this is a nine. it's a sequence of nine certain prayers or something like that. But he says, "Do you think you can make a novena?" He says, "Hey, if you got the plans, I got the love." Them. <laughs> but when Luther was sending out these ninety-five theses, because he wanted the church to begin to debate what he considered was a horrible practice because what it meant was the church had created this idea of an indulgence that would forgive people from the penance that had been proscribed by the church. And not only would they talk about the penance prescribed, but there was this thing of purgatory that came into being out of actually historic traditions that had nothing to do with Christianity, but it was part of a pagan kind of thing that became part of the Christian community. And so it meant that after someone died, if they hadn't fulfilled all their penance, they're going to have to go through this uh, time of purgatory before their forgiveness kicks in and uh, they get to go to heaven. Well, somebody got the idea that, hey, this is a big fundraising project. For the local church, you know, some of those people building churches, they spent years, sometimes a hundred years, building a big cathedral in a very small little town. Then someone gets the idea down in Rome, where they were building a big, big cathedral, St. Peter's Basilica. We can use the sale of indulgences for a fundraising project there. And it's that kind of, what would be the word for it? That kind of deceptive spirituality in the life of the church. That's what Luther was challenging. And it's the theses do not contain what his fundamental theology was, they only deal with that aspect, one aspect, and there was a guy going around by the name of John Tetzel who had some little rhyme in something like when the, when the coin drops in the box, a message springs out and the angels hear it in heaven. So, the coin makes a claim, and the voices in heaven ring, and uh, something like that. But one thing I discovered back in the 1960s when I was in Pittsburgh, and it was at a time when there was a Reformation celebration at the big Cathedral of Learning in Pittsburgh. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to Pittsburgh. Uh, this cathedral burning is this huge skyscraper building. Uh, I'm trying to think. Who's who's that uh, really famous architect? Uh, what? Well, all the modern stuff, you yeah, know. Who am I thinking of? You know who I'm talking about? I am red. I am fake. I am, I am It's not ringing a bell with me. Oh, Frank Flood, right. I was yeah. singing Andrew L. weber Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Anyway, he uh, he, he was That's this uh, critic of uh, architecture, and he called this cathedral learning the world's largest keep-off-the-brass sign. <laughs> and uh, anyway, while we were preparing for this And we're looking at these 95 theses, it occurred to me that there are certain things that could be utilized in his thinking that would be helpful for us. And his first idea was when our leader and teacher, in terms of thought and action teaching, for... Lord and Christ calls us to repentance. That is to show sincere penitence in our thinking and acting in new and different ways. His intention is that the whole life of believers in the church would be a perpetual reformation rooted in the Word of God in which we know and internalize the truth of a grace and mercy that can empower us to live out our lives in a freedom committed to reformation in the church and world. Now that was a very positive kind of thing to recognize that indeed there was a liberating word in what Jesus was doing and teaching. And so Jesus as teacher, leader, and role model is a much more important figure than teacher or as the Savior of the world who dies on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. A second point. That Word of God becomes an other word serving an other God, an idolatrous concept, when used for a pious comforting of believers and the church without a call to a life of discipleship. As that preaching Christ says, well, working for justice is an option. And he said, then God's grace and mercy are cheapened and the cost of discipleship ignored. Especially when Jesus is seen as a mediating figure rather than one who lives out the truth of justice. Point three. Cheap grace is the sign of an indulgent church that excuses itself from addressing all the forces of evil around us in terms of the context of social, economic, and political injustice. Indulging those whose possessions, privileges, and power hinder a commitment to reformation and change that encourages the preservation of the status quo in both the world and the church. And when our so-called leader talks about sovereignty, He's talking about that kind of sovereignty that excuses people of wealth. That excuses large corporations. That excuses our nation from its continued commitment to a racist, materialist, and militaristic system. Something that Martin Luther King called out back in 1964. And so uh, we need to recall the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who came to this country in the 20s, 1920s from Germany. Had a good cozy job at Union Seminary in New York. And then things were going downhill in Germany. He could have stayed. He went back to Germany. Became part of an underground church. Took the risks of confronting the evil of Nazism. And that's one of the things that in Luther's hymn, he says this is a risk-taking venture. And I've known some people who thought, well, when he says let wife and child, and all my possessions be gone, okay, I'm still part of God's kingdom. Now, that's not saying much about a commitment to family, but the emphasis is on the risk. Finally, the power of the church in any of its institutional manifestations It's not based on institutional strength, nor in any confessional tradition, and certainly not in claims of being descendants of the Reformation. Rather, the true power of the church. And when I say the church, it's a broad sweep that includes Unitarians. rests in proclaiming the good news of God's gracious and merciful truthfulness in history. In which we understand ourselves as creatures in the image of God, a God who graciously and mercifully invites us into a partnership that gives purpose and meaning to life. And when you consider the rise of megachurches and the religious right claiming to be followers of the teaching of Christ, can't be reduced to confessional statements of creeds, and so what I think we can learn from Luther is that in applying his thinking, we commit ourselves to being a reforming and liberating community, rejecting any of the laws related to class, race. Gender, sexual orientation, or religion, and seek that egalitarian community of equal justice which brings everyone together. So, in repentance and faith, and continually returning to a transcending word of God and a grace, mercy, compassion, and a call to equality and justice, it so universally proclaims. That's what we're invited to be about, always in the process of confession and repentance, leading to thinking and acting in new and different ways.